Hello, everyone. Welcome again to another edition of the DG Podcast. Our guest this week is Kai Rower, direct from Norway. He's an award-winning security professional, author, speaker, trainer. He's also CEO and co-founder of Culture and the author of Built to Build a Security Culture, a book that kind of gets into the nitty-gritty of culture and security culture and how it can be changed. Kai, great to have you. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. Would you, I know I just kind of gave you an introduction, but would you mind giving the listeners kind of a quick background, uh, how you got your start? What if I say yes, I would. (laughs) I'll I'll, uh, try to be nice today. So like many of us out there, I I have some, I've been around for a while. I started back in the 80s uh, as a kid in my parents' uh, basement uh, playing with a computer. I went to uni, uh, started the company because I wanted to, to uh, play with computers and, and use my skills and not end up like uh, one of those students with um, too much uh, loans. Uh, and then from there, so this would be mid-90s, I you know played with uh, people, with technology, management, and through all my career, it's, it's always been this security thing, although it took, quite, it took me quite a while before I realized it was security. I thought it was other stuff. But the other thing was always people. I always had this interest in in people, uh, not only the technology. And at some point, I started to combine them. Our industry started to complain about the behaviors of employees who didn't, you know, behave secure. They were the problem for everybody. And it was a lot of kind of blame gaming, but no one really asked the question, why is it like that? And how can we change this? What can we do to understand the human side of stuff? So, so I guess that's that's a brief thing. It, it took me where I am today. <laughs> nice. So, Kai, this is Will. And, uh, and again, thank you for joining us today. What do you think are, is most important to establishing a security-oriented culture? And what do you think are the biggest detriments to fostering a culture that actually embraces security and succeeds in making security not just an obligation, but an actual living, breathing part of the culture that encourages the organization's business, whatever that business may be? So there was a lot of questions in there. Well, I will start with with something that may sound a bit blunt. I tend to, to say that I'm not in the opinion industry. I'm in the facts industry. But when it comes to culture and specifically security culture and figuring out how we can understand it, which I believe is a requirements if we want to change it, uh, and, and then figure out what works when we change it. We, we, we need to move away from my opinions or your opinions or someone else's opinions into measuring and, and gathering facts, evidence. So for the past five years, give or take, I, I've been focused on, on figuring out how can we gather this evidence and then use that evidence to fix the problems. We see a lot of fascinating stuff in our research. One of them is that there are differences between genders. So guys and girls treat risk management and security differently, which is not really surprising because we are, guess what, different. But still, it's something that most companies don't really do or take seriously. 
another fascinating thing we see is age and how age influences uh, security and then security behavior and culture. The older you are, it seems, the more adept becomes your security culture. This one way to answer your question then becomes to, to hire older people or let your employees get older and then get better culture. But of course, that would uh, the age thing is, is more a result of activities over a career than the result of waiting or doing nothing, right? Yeah. Kai, may I ask you, you mentioned first that there was a difference, a noticeable, I would hesitate to say quantifiable difference, but a qualifiable difference between the way in which men and women approach risk and risk management. Could you expand on that a little bit so the audience has an under, you know, gets a clearer understanding of what you mean by that? Yeah. So first I'd say those who prefer to read can download um, some, a report we made on this from our website and some infographics and, and some stuff. But in practice, there is, for example, 10 times higher risk of male or guys, if you like, doing risky internet behavior compared to females, which tells you that one out of 100 female colleagues are likely to click on something crazy for whatever reason, while one out of 10 of your male colleagues are, are likely to click on the same thing. This means we believe and now we are gathering data on that. We believe that, that this kind of insights makes a gender balance very, very important. So imagine then uh, if you have a team with mainly male people, maybe 90% of the employees are male. Combine that with the age, so they are young males. Now, of course, we are looking at startup cultures in California, for example, right? A lot of young males. One company in particular dealt or still dealing with um, transportation globally. Uh, no names named here. Uh, but their culture is very close to the results in our research. And our research is based in Europe. But, but what our research show is that males take more risk faster and without incorporating their personal risk into a risk management strategy of the company. And this we also saw then in this particular company in, in California, four letters starting with a U, I believe, where they had to sack their CEO due to misconduct, not only on, on gender and sexual harassment side, but also it, it media has uh, shown us that the same misconduct, same kind of behavior were seen in their business activities and also when they had this breach, which they never or, or very delayed mentioned that were there. Right. So I think if I understand you, and, uh, and feel free to stop me, I think if I hear you correctly, what you're saying is, is that there is a propensity amongst males versus females in, ta in being uh, in more in endeavoring in more risky behavior, whether it's in business risk and also social risk. Am I hearing you correctly, Kai? Yes, that, that is what our uh, current research is, is strongly suggesting. Do you think that that has anything to do with age? You mentioned age earlier and maturity amongst uh, being a differentiator with respect to the success of security culture an organizational culture as a whole. Do you think mm -hmm. that that has something to do with the fact that we know now that the frontal lobe, for example, in human beings doesn't fully mature until age 25? Does your research show that more of this risky behavior takes place amongst 
uh, males versus females uh, who are under the age of 25? Or is, th- is that not a, a determining factor in your research? We, we haven't looked into that detail. I will actually take a note on that because that is a very interesting thing here. If, if you can see then a stronger uh, risky behavior, risky culture, uh, not only in males, but particularly in younger males, that would be very, very fascinating. And, and as you say, goes along with a lot of psychological research uh, done by, by a number of others. Yeah, I find it fascinating. You know, then it's oftentimes, you know, there's more, I think, now in the last five to 10 years of an intersection, at least a cross-pollination of disciplines within our space, uh, specifically with respect to security and uh, psychology than there had been in the past. And I think that that's become more and more important as social media, for example, has become more and more uh, ingrained in our lives. So it's an interesting point, I think, that you've made in your research that I'm curious to know, is, is that something that you've noticed globally, Kai, or is that something that is more specifically relegated to specific geotheaters than others? I would have to be honest because that's uh, <laughs> that's important. Our research currently uses data from Europe only. We have recently expanded our data collection to uh, some Asian countries, and I hope to see a large additional data set from the U.S. actually this year. And if anyone is listening and would like to to help us gather this data, I would be very interested in in talking. But there is one small culprit. People who give us data also give us money. Oh, I see. (laughs) So the the data sources are clients. Gotcha. Uh, (laughs) Well, we need to see if we can connect some dots for you, maybe amongst the academic academic community. I know that Jess Barker, are you familiar with Jess Barker, Kai? She's based out of the UK. She's a, uh, she's, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, she's a PhD. She's a friend of not only the podcast, but also Digital Gardens. She's been on the podcast before. She does some work in this in a similar area, I think, that you guys are doing some work in. Uh, perhaps there's an opportunity to collaborate. There's also a really interesting uh, PhD in Ireland. And uh, let me see if I've got her name correct for you. Um, I just want to make sure I've got her name. And it's Dr. Mary Aiken. Have you heard of Dr. Mary Aiken? I actually have, and I may even have been introduced but I don't recall. I, I have a challenge with names, Will. That's all right. No worries. Well, if I can connect you, I'd be happy to. She does a lot of, Dr. Aiken does a lot of really interesting work in and around that nexus point between cyber culture and psychology as well. You know, it's funny because, you know, coming out of the world that I came out of, starting out in the DOD and then kind of working with the consultancies in the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, we did a lot of, uh, and that let in the research organizations, we, we adopted a lot of tools and tradecraft that uh, really ha- were built upon the house that behavioral psychologists founded, right? So for, yes. for, for profiling purposes. So Dr. Aiken does a lot of that kind of work uh, and some other folks do. I think it'd be kind of interesting to see your data with some of her data and kind of the perspective that you can bring together. So uh, Chris, do you have any questions for Kai? Or No, I, I was just looking at Mary Aiken and I, it's kind of fascinating that she refers to herself as a cyber psychologist. That's just, that's the first. That is an observation and a discussion for a different podcast or possibly a bar chat. There are a lot of fascinating things uh, with cyber in front of them. (laughs) It's true. I was curious about how, if there are any rational metrics around the benefits of kind of deploying a good security culture. If there's any, you know, at the end of the day, if there's a way that you can kind of, you know, ways to tally up uh, the wins. 
So I would say that definitively there is a lot of rational explanation. There are a lot of data on this, and there are also some challenges with some of this data. Uh, number one, they are not collected in a way that makes them easily comparable. Number two, they tend to be very opinionated, which we started today. And uh, number three, because they are then so diverse and opinionated, it makes them very difficult to use on a wide scale to make decisions from. One of my missions in our cultures, uh, our company missions, is to attack that very problem, to figure out how can we make a standard a benchmark, if you like, of measuring security culture. The, the idea then is to have a standard tool, a standard set of analytics, and then run this on a number of different organizations, locations, sizes, whatnot, and using the same yardstick, if you like, I guess you guys are on yards and not meters, enables us to compare this across industries and then countries and stuff like that but it also enables a comparison over time and by comparing over time we will be able to tell you yes or no to that question is there stuff in security culture that influences improves hopefully the security culture so kai what do you see as being as outside of the fact that there may be a maturity and age issue and potentially even a neuropsychological developmental factor at play here. What do you see being some of the most common mistakes and the common you know, prohibitors to successful adoption or even really successful introduction of a security-oriented culture in your work? I am biased, but so are we all, I'm, uh, <laughs> I heard. I see a number of things. Uh, one of the most important things that I've seen in the past and which, in my opinion, uh, is being reduced is the um, uh, idea of the, the, the security team uh, that they are the kings on the hill. So, so, so they get to say yes and no, and uh, everybody needs to adapt to them, and they don't need to adapt to anyone. And uh, with your DoD background, you probably have some ideas on how that kind of attitude influences your surroundings and your culture. So... If you flip that then and, and see what, what actually works is when the security team or those in charge of building the culture embrace that idea and empowers the, the organization. For example, Canon EMEA with uh, Quentin Taylor as their as a CISO has security, cybersecurity or information security into their core business model. So their sales teams around Europe is talking security. Well, as we know, Canon is selling printers. So by understanding the business, by aligning security to business and business to security, you can build a culture where uh, security gets embedded and empowers your colleagues and their job instead of uh, getting in the way of the job your colleagues are supposed to be doing. That makes sense. I guess what I'm curious about it is why do you think organizations knowing that, right? Because a lot of what you're saying has, has been you know, posited for a number of years, right? That if you embrace security as, as part of your culture, idealistically, academically, theoretically speaking, a lot of benefits sh should manifest as a result of that. But knowing all of that, right? 
and know and knowing that there's research out there and there's work out there that complements your own, and knowing that organizations know are aware of that and still don't do it, why do you think they don't do it? Why do you think the bell or the the light bulb hasn't proverbially lit in for organizations kind of around the world where they go, ah, oh, this absolutely should be a part of how we how and why we do business? So I believe that things takes time. In 2012, I think, I started to use the term security culture outside of academic and kind of spread it into the security or information security community. It took years, actually, before it started to be used by more than just a couple of us. But today, five years later, we see the term being used a lot. Also, by people who don't really understand what they're talking about, they, they, they are still they're using the term security culture instead of security awareness, but they're still talking about awareness. Now, if we then take this example and move it into a corporate environment, what we know about corporations is that they come with politics. And by politics, we mean what we say. So so all those, you know, noises in the hallways, uh, you scratch my back, I scratch yours, getting reports and consulting stuff to say my back should my decision be wrong in the future, stuff like that. In parallel in corporations, you have this idea of changing culture takes time. And yes, sometimes it does. And like we are like this huge uh, ship on the water, which needs half the ocean to turn around. And for some of them, it is true. So so imagine you will, if you were working in a global corporation, 20,000 employees or more, you are in the security team, and maybe you are even in the corporate security team. But when you start there, they are not really into security culture. They, they focus on, on uh, technical controls and uh, probably compliance. And you may be the only one on that team who, who are like, hmm, maybe we need to do something with the employees. Your CISO may say, well, you know, we do. We have this uh, training program that runs once a year or something like that. So it's good. But you see that mm, maybe we can do better then imagine the road you need to go out on first gathering the evidence that there's a business case in changing or improving the security culture and then trying to sell this internally, which means that first you probably need to get your CISO on the board or on your on your side and on board. And then if you're lucky or maybe not, depending on your perspective, you will be tasked with convincing management or even the board. And these processes can take years. But what we do see now is a very dramatic increase the past year only in, in companies around the world interested in what we do. So both the security culture framework, which is the methodology of how to build and improve the security culture, and in our culture toolkit, which is the uh, tool to measure security culture so you can understand where you are, where your strong holes are, where your weak spots are, and how you improve over time. So, So I believe that the reason we see a change is that time is coming, but the reason we haven't seen as much as we probably will going forward is time is coming. We, we are getting there. So give us five more years, and I believe that the, the industry as a whole, globally, will do security culture programs, not just because they have to check a box, but because they 
realize, understand, and have gotten internal acceptance for the fact that security culture is a very important part of corporate culture, which drives revenue and risk reduction. And I think that you're right. It does take time to turn around massive organizations. What I find interesting, and I'd love to get your opinion on this, is that, you know, obviously, last 10 years have kind of, has kind of been, you know, not that it's not that breaches and compromises never ex- existed or happened before, but certainly in the last 10 years, especially with the advent of tools like uh, Verizon's uh, Veris and the DBIR report, the last decade has been sort of the decade of the breach, right? And uh, even though the data suggests that, you know, from 2016 to 2017, there were fewer breaches, but the severity and the gross magnitude has gotten worse, in fact, even though the number of reported breaches that they deal with has gone down. And that's that's important to caveat. They don't deal with every breach globally. They just deal with a subset of those breaches that are reported to them or that they work on themselves. But knowing that, all of that, <laughs> I had a big coffee cut. You know, <laughs> what would be your advice to, the, to, the, to a CISO or a CIO or uh, a director of security or even a board or a board member or a CEO in the wake of seeing some of these giants of industry, these mm-hmm. Absolutely gargantuan entities, whether it's Equifax or Target in the effort from a few years ago or Home Depot or OPM on the government side, what would your advice be if you sat down in, in a room and they said, hey, Kai, we're really trying. We're looking at where we are making steps and taking measures to uh, mitigate our risks. We're utilizing compensating controls. We do have a security awareness program and we're still falling down. What would you say to that to that CISO or to that concerned party? Yeah, so, so, so I would probably start with, well, give me all your money. Uh, then, of course, we both know that I will not be able to solve any of those problems, even if you give me all your money. But yeah, no, jokes aside, the first thing to realize is that although we do keep blaming the human factors, blaming your colleagues, your employees for clicking on one of those links is a no-go. There are no such thing as a stupid coworker or employee. It's either lack of training, but more often than not, uh, with your examples of those breaches we've seen over the five years, it's a lack on the technical uh, technology uh, side. Yes, uh, employees are being triggered and and uh, tricked into doing stuff, but the the key here is tricked. You mentioned psychology earlier. As humans, we come with a number of psychological um, mechanisms, if you like, which are created, they they are part of us in the physiology, and without them, we will not be able to be humans and uh, building these societies we do. Some of these things are trust. So although we don't know each other that well, Will, we have met maybe a couple of times and chatted and, and stayed in touch. And you being the American, you would probably call me a friend. And after a couple of drinks, you would probably even tell me you love me. Being the, the Scandinavian, I would probably say something else. But none of that would happen. None of those conversations and, and even this interview would happen without that trust. Me trusting you and you trusting me. So understanding some of these psychological mechanisms that are crucial for being uh, human is, is important. And that means stop the blame gaming. Number two, the technology side. I know that people say that, well, you know, we cannot change the technology. I strongly disagree with that. I strongly believe that uh, the technology we have today is very, very flawed. 
Just think about the internet technology. It was created by ARPANET back in the 60s to make it worse. The, the internet, as we know it today, was created for accessibility, not for um, constraining information. The whole purpose was to ensure that the information came from point A to point B in case of a societal uh, crisis. And we are building all this secrecy on top of this, which is difficult, in my opinion. And of course, if people building this technology and people comes with the same uh, human biases as your colleagues. So it's a complex thing. But do the solution need to be complex? Probably not. Uh, understanding that people will always make mistakes because that's how we are made is a crucial first step. Uh, using technology that we have available to increase the level of protection is vital. Uh, Gmail, for example, have a very nice technology that is even free to weed out most spam, phishing, and all kind of email-based threats. I'm a huge fan of that kind of technology uh, because if me, I, as a person, even with, with all that knowledge and, and experience I have, I will at some point click on that link, except if I never see it. Yeah. Now, that's, you, you bring up a good point. Are you familiar with Mike Johnson, Kai? I don't think so. But Mike Johnson is the CISO for Lyft, uh, which is a competitor. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. The competitor of that other organization you mentioned earlier. And, uh, well, yes, I, follow, exactly. I follow Mike on, on LinkedIn. I pay attention to, you know, and I think actually, you know. It's difficult not to follow him on LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah. He was with Salesforce, you know, for a number of years and a really sharp guy. And, he's a CEO. and uh, not too long ago, uh, actually, about maybe a couple of weeks back, he actually started talking about, he, and I'm going to paraphrase. So, Mike, if you're listening, number one, I like what you post. Two, I'm going to paraphrase you. He said something along the lines of, uh, he feels like it's time for us to stop referring to our employees as our greatest weakness and start looking at them as our assets from a security perspective. And that kind of dovetails into what you're, what you're suggesting too, right? It's a, it's a pair. I hate this term, but it's because it's so used, used so often, but really it's a paradigm shift, right? Where to your point about the blame game, it's like, we need to stop, stop his, his assertion is, is that we should, we need to really stop looking at them as being our greatest weakness and start looking at how we can leverage them as our greatest, our greatest point of strength. Right. And I thought that was an interesting insight. What do you think about that? Would you, it sounds like you would agree, but I'd love to hear what your perspective is on that. <laughs> yes, I would agree with him. We are very lucky today that it's not only me and him who push this message. Over the past couple of years, this, uh, at least here in Europe, this message is, is not only starting to be pushed, but starting to resonate. In the UK, there is um, a lady called uh, Jenny Radcliffe, and she's been pushing what she called the human firewall for, for quite some time now. So yes, this resonates, and yes, it is a paradigm shift, or a paradigm shift to happen at least. And I believe it is really important, but these are still opinions. I think that in addition to these opinions, we need uh, to gather facts so that we can understand what is actually working and, and how we can help turning these people into a great security asset. Yeah, it's interesting, right? You know, I, I find it fascinating when, when we, you know, having come from after the DoD and, and after, uh, and then being in consultancy uh, land for a number of years, probably probably from like uh, ninety seven to two thousand four in consultancies, and then going into the vendor the vendor space. When I worked in consultancies, you know, I thought it was interesting in that when we would do security assessments, 
uh, whether they involved a penetration test or a red team. You know, the firm that I worked for at the time that was probably the most pre- prestigious was International Network Services and did a lot of early, very aggressive red team activity way before it was hipster, fashionable, or cool. Uh, because a lot of the guys who had been around that team, a lot of the guys and the gals were former military and former IC and law enforcement. So but one of the things I always found fascinating was that when we would do security assessments and when we would you know, complete the assessment, especially if it was a full scope type type of assessment that involved physical penetration, social engineering, again, before that was you know kind of hipster cool. And then uh, some of these other things was that when we deliver that deliverable to, you know, to the client, you know, and you kind of walk away after having a, a large meal, a um, meeting, excuse me, not a meal, <laughs> with, that, with that client, you present all your findings, you know, all your advice, all, all the methodologies outlined. I was always curious about whether or not people would actually put that into practice and to what degree of success they would have post assessment. So in your work, Kai, over, over the last several years, five, five years plus, you've been really working on pioneering this ideology of a methodology of security culture and trying to really get gross permeance of that globally. What do you see when people subscribe to security assessments and penetration tests and zero knowledge type activities? Are you seeing are you seeing people actually learn from those mistakes? I've seen recently some a report, I think it was CyberArk, uh, who did a report, uh, commissioned a report uh, not long ago that suggested that security professionals aren't actually learning lessons from compromises and breaches. Are you seeing the same thing? And uh, how much of that do you think is influenced by a lack of culture? So I probably do see some of those things, but but since we focus on, on the people side and not on the technology, and we don't do any red teaming, any penetration testing, we don't even do social engineering, we don't do any of those hipster stuff. What we are is creating the next new hot stuff five years from now. <laughs> but I do see uh, frustration with, with uh, some of the security people that they lack resources sometimes, maybe they lack understanding either within their team or their organization to actually deal with these things. But I believe that this is twofold, right? So, so one side is on the business itself that, that may not recognize this problem. But the other side, I have come to believe, also resides with our industry, us as security people, failing to understand the purpose of an industry or, or organization. So, so my company, for example, is a commercial company. That means that we are building a company to make a profit. Uh, and when we do that, you always have to ask, who are we building this profit for? And the short answer for most commercial companies is the owners, or as the companies grows, for the shareholders and that means you start a whole new game with gaming the uh, stock prices and all that stuff. And for the company, the focus is on building this profit and not so much on security. So, so it's a business case in there somewhere, right? So in on different words, let's say that I run a huge corporation and you come to me and say, Kai, we need to invest $10 million in this security program. And I'm saying, uh, okay, so we'll, why would I do that? I will have to take that pocket out of the profit share to our shareholders. They will not like that. And my personal salary will go down too. And then you will say, well, you know, if we don't do that, we risk a breach of possibly $100 million or whatever the number is. And I'm saying, so that's uh, not good, but what is the risk? Well, one in five, one in 10, maybe. 
You see where I'm going? And then I'm like, okay, so so I see that from your perspective, there's a business case in investing this $10 million. But from my perspective, the risk looks different. I either risk paying you $10, $10 million now, which goes directly out of this quarter, which is not good for my stock. Or sometimes, potentially, possibly, but not maybe not even probably, in the future, so not this quarter, not this fiscal year, something may happen, right? So that's the psychology of management and, and, and finances. Now, we have been debating this for at least since TJX breach in was it 2007, I think it was, give or take a year or two, uh, but one of the first major credit card breaches. The security industry, so, so you and me and a lot of people were like, oh my God, that company is going down. It's a huge breach. Most of them either forgot it or got very surprised a couple of quarters later when TJS, TJX reported increase in sales and revenue and profit. After this huge breach, which was a huge cluster thing, this is US, so I probably shouldn't say cluster fuck, but I just did. Security people don't understand business is what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I think you're right. You know, and, 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 and you know, use painting with a broad, a broad brush. I think that there's a lot of truth in that, you know, and I'm curious, you know, Chris, I know when you were in your, in your former role with the folks over at Threat Post, you probably saw a lot of stories related to this too. So what are, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, you, would well, you agree with what Kai's so saying? funny because I, I just came into the world. You guys obviously have so much more experience than I, but I, TJX, I, I remember was a thing maybe like one or two years before I started to cover security. And uh, it was such a, you know, a story that I saw it in the headlines and then it disappeared Mm -hmm. for somebody like me. It was kind of like a flash in the pan. And it's sort of how how funny that you're kind of explaining it like that. Like, Oh yeah, it, you know, it wasn't the end of the world. They went on and they, you know, continued on doing their thing. And they're now very, still a very popular company. (laughs) So the key there is not still very, but True, more yeah. popular. Just one thing after that they had, I, I don't remember the numbers. I did an article on this on my blog back, back then uh, because I, I thought it was interesting and, and it's a different discourse than, than what we keep telling in the security industry where we say that a breach is a huge risk and it's a costly affair and blah, blah, blah. But when you look at this from a, a financial side, it doesn't have to be. It can actually turn into a... It could be like a learning experience almost. So this is one of the things that I, I think was really, really fascinating with TJX is how they paid damage to their customers. So they lost like, I, I don't remember, 40 million or something credit card numbers or some credit cards, right? And then, of course, they had to pay back to all these customers something. What they did was to issue a five or 10 or something stupid number, gift card. It's not cash. It's not cash. <laughs> gift card. And the number just below the average priced product in their shop. Mm. So basically what happened is like, okay, Will, here is a gift card for you. You have to spend it in our shop, but you can not actually buy anything with it because it will only pay part of your purchase. So give us more money, please. Thank you very much. 
<laughs> it's actually rather clever. It's very, very clever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, perhaps a little bit insidious, but, in, but clever nonetheless. You know, I, I think it's interesting, right, when you look back on some of these things, and, you know, and, and I think that's the most, you know, the most fascinating thing to me, right? You mentioned earlier that, you know, you don't, your organization doesn't focus on, on technology controls or even on social engineering. But, when, you know, I think one of the things that I learned when, when I was working in the consultancies way back before a lot of these things became kind of, like I said, hipster cool, was that that manipulation of the human being, right, which we did a lot of in that work when I worked for INS, is really paramount, right? So I think to your, where I see the, the natural connection for what you're talking about, Kai, and what guys like Mike Johnson are talking about and some other folks are talking about too, is really that, and this is where I wonder about that, that, that whether or not the, the efficacy or, what, or whether or not people are actually able to capitalize on the results of those types of tests and have wonder for years and years and years. I think that it's interesting because, you know, when we look at, when I used to do that kind of work and we would social engineer people way before there was anything like a social engineering toolkit or anything like that, with guys like Greg Barnes and a whole bunch of other people, Aaron Higby, who was one of the founders from Fishme, mm-hmm. who had acquired, you know, he used to work for INS before he was a Foundstone years ago. So there were a number of guys. And when we would do that kind of work nationally and globally, it was always fascinating to me because you never knew after you were done with the, the engagement whether or not actually people would put anything into practice that you had talked to them about from an advisory perspective, unless you had the good fortune to kind of be re-engaged. So I'm curious, you know, you know, when you said, you know, you, you really focus on the people, but I, I see the type of work that you're, you're pioneering as being really instrumental and key to minimizing the impact of skilled professionals going in and doing the type of work that we used to do. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. In the past, and this is changing now, right? But in the past, one of my criticisms of our industry was that we focused too much on technology, too little on the business side and the human side. Some years ago, don't ask me how many, but but more than a decade ago, I were one of those salespeople pushing firewalls, right? So for some years, I I were pushing firewalls and and, uh, gateway devices and whatever the thing we called these things back then. And every year you went back to the same customer and said, well, you know, here's a new box. It's much better than what you bought last year. And this one has blue LEDs. Imagine that. And then today I'm like, okay, so, so why would you even care about your firewall having blue or red or yellow LEDs? It, does, it makes no sense. But, but that was, you know, part of pushing boxes back in the day. So blinky light changing the LED, you're suggesting made it had a material. was enough of a differentiator to have a conversation about doing a, uh, an upgrade, huh? <laughs> it is, of course, a bit put on an angle, but... but Yes. Yeah. Yeah, some, so, some scenarios, it was like, okay, so what's a new feature? It doesn't really matter because we're not going to use it anyway. But uh, yeah, let's uh, do this order. Well, I actually remember a routing and switching company. There were actually a couple that tried this uh, years ago. Again, we're going to date ourselves a little bit and it might make Chris feel bad. But <laughs> okay, I'm used to it. <laughs> I, remember, uh, I remember years back like when really the largest you know, routing and switching organizations were Cisco Systems, Cabletron, to a lesser extent, Bay Networks, and that there were, I mean, there were, you know, Synoptics and some other folks that were out there. And I remember when uh, Extreme Networks launched. Remember that, Kai, when Extreme yeah, launched? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and their differentiator, you know, they had some good routing and switching capability, but one of the biggest differentiators, which I thought was an, which is interesting, and it was an aesthetic differentiator, they painted their boxes purple. Watch <laughs> yeah, did the same thing. We have red boxes. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And I remember... You know, this is still going on, you know, Will. 
I don't know. I've been away from the hardware space for a while, so it's. <laughs> it's kind of yeah, no, but today is not no longer hardware. Everything is managed and serviced and blah blah blah. But I think this is what is called threat management solutions or threat monitoring solutions or whatever. It's another space we are not in. But was it last year? I went to Infosec in London and um, come to one of these huge stands and. The whole thing, the most important thing for them, their unique selling point was this. Our dashboard was designed by a game designer. I will report that, I will repeat that. Our dashboard is designed by a game designer. Look how cool it is. And I'm like, uh, excuse me, you are a security company or are you an online game thing? No, no, we have security. Look how cool it is. So what do you really do? Well, you know, we show how things are moving and it's designed by a game designer. Oh my God. Yeah, to some some respect, to me, this is just pink boxes, blue LEDs or red boxes or whatever. Interesting. Well, hey, we're coming up on the hour. So I appropriated a new thing. I haven't even told Chris about it yet. <laughs> Surprise, Chris. I appropriated this from... Uh, one of my favorite podcasts of all time. So I guess, uh, you know, uh, mimicry, what's that old saying about mimicry is the most sincere form of, uh, of fl- flattery or something? Yes, 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 yes. So there's a guy, Dave Asprey, who's a technologist out of the San Francisco Bay Area, Silicon Valley. And, you know, you're, he's an old Exodus communications guy and he was with Trend Micro for a long time. And now he's got his own startup that's uh, in, you know, in and around biohacking. It's one of my favorite uh, companies. And he's got probably one of my favorite uh, podcasts of all time. Got kind of a, you know, a real high degree of admiration for him. And then this company is called Bulletproof. So anyway, mm-hmm. one of the things I love about what he does when he closes the show is that he always asks his guests, what three things could people do to really exceed or meet and go beyond you know, their best effort as it is standing today? Something to that effect. Now, I don't want to steal Dave Slender because he's an awesome guy and I really love and respect what he's doing. But from a security perspective, Kai, what are the three things if, that if someone said, hey, what can I do today, Kai, as a CISO, as a board member, as a CEO, to ensure that our culture becomes more security-infused, right? That we truly do have a security-infused culture and a a culture that embraces security as part of our day-to-day operational strategy. And it's not simply something that we have to demonstrate in terms of artifacts for for some form of governance and compliance requirement. What would you say to that person? So I would say the same thing I'm going to say to you, Will. When your um, uh, the, the guy you mentioned in the podcast put this question in the end of the podcast, he have already, before the podcast interview started, prepared his guest so the guest knows that this question will come up. So, so that would be my first uh, recommendation or answer to this. Be prepared. Things will happen. It may not be what you have planned for, but if you have planned for things that will happen and maybe even done some trainings, have processes in place, that actually helps. Just like it would have helped me if you had mentioned this before. <laughs> I, owe you, um, I owe you a couple of beers for that one, guy. <laughs> yes, I love you too, brother. <laughs> so the next one would be understand the relationship between people process and technology. I typically call it people policy and technology to to enforce the message that we need incentives. But when I say understand the relationship of these three elements is that if you change one of them, the two other gets changed too. If you don't understand that or even see that, you will fail to control it. And when you do security culture or culture in general, you want to control the culture. 
So trying to figure out what will this technology make, uh, what kind of changes will this new technology make on my team and on the policies? Or how will this new training change the way we use technology or accept policies? So that would be the second. The third one would be to start gather data. We have more than enough opinions, even I do, but we need data so, so that we both can understand what is working, what is not working, how things are changing based on uh, activities, actions we do, and also so that we can go back in time in case of a breach or an incident so that we can both uh, piece the incident back into uh, and understand what, what actually happened, but also so that we can learn it. As a bonus there, I will give you a fourth one. By using um, uh, or, or gathering data and metrics like this, you can also, some point in the future, use that data to create your own predictive analysis. So, so you can hopefully better understand what kind of events or incidents are more likely to happen in your organization. That's great. Excellent. Well, Kai, uh, yeah, that was really awesome. Kai, it's a pleasure having you on the show. If people want more information about what you and your organization culture are doing, where can they find information about you, your appearances, and, and your methodology? So the easiest would be to go to our website. It's uh, HTTPS colon slash slash and then it's clt.re so culture without the use and dot re instead of com so clt.re there everything is there excellent kai roar everyone uh joins us for episode 20 and this is uh, will graduate uh, along with uh chris brooke and we want to say thank you for listening and we will see you next time thanks so much thank you thank you